Hi, Pastor Chad Tucker here from Doxa Church in Burlington, North Carolina. To learn more about our new ministry and to find out about how you can partner with us, visit us online at doxaburlington.com. That's D-O-X-A burlington.com. We hope you enjoy the message. John says, I, John, your brother and partner in the affliction, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos. Remember, it's Patmos, not Patmos. You see it there uh, on the map. It's about 13 and a half square miles. It's a crescent-shaped uh, island. So I was there on the island of Patmos. Now, why was he on the island of Patmos? Well, why do we go to islands today to vacation and to have fun in the Caribbean, to see the beautiful water? And that's not why John was there, okay? He was there because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He says in verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And so you can kind of see how these, uh, how these churches and these cities would be, would be laid out. It's, it's a, a clockwise shape. And this would be the particular mail route that it would go. So John is here. He's on the Isle of Patmos. He's banished to the island. It is a place of, uh, banishment, a place of isolation. Uh, you can go there today. And in fact, there's a cave overlooking the the sea that they say is the place where John received the revelation and wrote it down. In fact, they say that's one of the reasons why seas are mentioned so many times in the book of Revelation, because he would be there looking out over it and, of course, would be uh, influenced uh, by that. But regardless, there's John. He's in his 90s, and he's there uh, on Patmos. Some people say Patmos is really a long O, Patmos. And what was he doing there? And this is why you need to start in other places and come to the book of Revelation. Vance, for example, read, if you would, your verse 9, just the first part of it. Hi, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation. Okay, stop right there. In my Bible, it says partner in affliction. Vance says companion in tribulation. Tribulation. If we start with the book of Revelation, then we would, we could conclude that John is going to go with them through the tribulation or conclude that he was already in the tribulation. All right. So we have to know when is affliction and tribulation referring to the great tribulation or the tribulation period as the time to come and when it refers to the normal suffering because of the testimony of Christ and because of those things that we go through. Remember what the Bible says in John 16:33, Jesus says, "In this world, now now our translation says, you will have tribulation." Now that that will have is not just a future tense. The will have is certainty. Literally, it says, in this world, you have tribulation. I have overcome. So our translation translates it, will have tribulation, indicating the certainty of the tribulation that's going to come in this world, rather than saying that something's going to happen at some future event. 
And yet we also know that the Bible does talk about that partnership or that suffering in the, in the great tribulation that's going to come that we're going to read about in Revelation 6 through 18. What causes or what separates the, the, in this world you will have tribulation from the tribulation period is, is one thing. And that's found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and that is the restrainer. The restrainer. In other words, Thessalonians tells us that what, though the world that we live in today is vastly moving to a more evil capacity, more wicked capacity, and legislating things against God and things violate his word and all of those things it's not as bad as it's going to get because there is a restrainer that is restraining was the restrainer restraining when John was when John was was on the Isle of Patmos yes was he restraining while he was writing this yes Will he be restraining when we get to Revelation 6 through 18? He will not. The restrainer will no longer be restraining, and the world will get as wicked and evil and tribulation and the wrath of God and all those things will come. So what keeps us from getting to that point, when it happens, it's not going to happen because evil finally gets to the tipping point. What's going to happen is, is that which is restraining, he who is restraining the evil from becoming as bad as it is, once the restrainer is removed, then the wrath of God, the wrath of Satan, and all the wicked evilness of the world will have its way in the what's called the tribulation period. John in this passage is not talking about partnership in the tribulation period, the seven-year tribulation, last three and a half years being the great tribulation. He's talking about suffering for the cause of Christ. He's talking about affliction or partnership in the gospel. Now, it's bad enough, right? If you look over in Hebrews chapter 10, let me just uh, read this for you. Uh, Hebrews 10, because it has the same language there. Uh, the same language as what we what we find here, Hebrews chapter ten, verse thirty-two. He says, "Remember the earlier days when, after you've been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions, and at other times you were companions of those who were treated that way." For you sympathized with the prisoners and accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions because you know that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. So don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you need endurance so that after you have done God's will, you may receive what was promised. If you want to get an idea of some of the things that they endured, some of the things that they they had to go through in that day for the cause of Christ. Right? Jesus says, take up your cross and follow, deny yourself and follow me. Some of the things that they would have endured in that day, we read in the chapter of the Hall of Fame of Faith in chapter 11, where he says this. 
Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. And what more can I say? Time is too short for me to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the raging of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength and weakness, became mighty in battle, and put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead, raised to life again. That's what we all want. Right? We want the victorious times. We want times when everything goes our way. We want it when we get our lives back. We want it when we, when miracles are happening and things like that. But he goes on to say, other people were tortured, not accepting release so that they might gain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings as well as bonds and imprisonments. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. Those people are listed in the Hall of Fame of Faith as well as those who were delivered, experienced the miracles and the blessings and the deliverances. It's these that the Bible says the world was not worthy of them. So here's John. He's on the Isle of Patmos. And there on the Isle of Patmos, why is he banished to this island? Well, Emperor Domitian um, was uh, in charge. And under Domitian's reign, John was arrested. Uh, Domitian reigned from about 81 A.D. to 96. So we know the book of Revelation was written before A.D. 96, probably between 92 and 95 A.D. It was the last book of the Bible uh, written. And here's John, and he's on the Isle of Patmos. And what did he do wrong? What did he do wrong? Why was he imprisoned? Why was he banished to the island? What crime did he commit? Well, it says here in this particular passage of Scripture that he's there because of the Word of God, even the testimony of Jesus. So why was he there? He wasn't there because he did anything wrong. There are no crimes. There are no, right? He was faithful and in being faithful, he was arrested and banished to this island, even in his 90s to do hard labor. Now, I don't know how much hard labor they would have gotten from him being in his early 90s, but certainly that's where he was. Think about this, if you will. He's there because of that. Um, what do you think his attitude would be? What would your attitude be? I imagine it would be, hopefully it would be like John's. I, John doesn't exhibit any bitterness or any anger. John's not writing about trying to overthrow. He's not stating his case. He's not doing those things. What do you think John did? I think John did the same thing on the Isle of Patmos that he did everywhere else that got him there. Was he lived for Christ. He walked faithfully. He stayed focused on the Word of God. He shared the testimony of Jesus. I think he did the same thing there, just like the Apostle Paul did, where they Apostle Paul was free or the Apostle Paul was imprisoned, whether he was being stoned or whatever, he continued to share Christ and continue to do those things. I think
think John did the same thing uh, as well. John's lifestyle pattern would be would be that he was there because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus and he would continue to do those things. There's no plans for an uprising. All these things are absent from that and I think it's important for us to to consider that. Not only that, but notice verse 10. He says, I was in the Spirit when? On the Lord's Day. On the Lord's Day. So even though John was banished to an island, even though he was there doing hard labor, he still remembered and understood when it's the Lord's Day and still set that side of time, even in the midst of doing hard labor. I don't know if they gave him Sundays off or not, but it was the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day was Sunday before because Jesus rose again on Sunday. The early church worshipped on Sundays. Before Jesus rose, they worshipped on Saturdays. But it's the Lord's Day, and what was he doing? The same thing he did every day. He was trying to walk with the Lord. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He was confessing his sin, perhaps. He was making sure that there was nothing in his life that would hinder the work and flow and and move of God. He was going through the same pattern and routines of life that he'd always done, even though he's banished on the island of Patmos. He still acknowledged the Lord's day, even in the midst of his suffering. This day would certainly be unique and unlike any other day. Because this is the day that he would hear the voice of a trumpet shout right behind him, the voice of a trumpet. And he'll turn around and we're going to see next week that it's the Lord Jesus who's there. And we're going to talk about that when I saw him is next week. But I want you to understand this, that here he is. He's on the island And the Lord Jesus meets him there. I think it's, I think it's amazing, Yolanda. I think what's amazing is, what's amazing are the things the Lord doesn't say. I think what the Lord doesn't say is just as important as what the Lord says. Perhaps even more so. For, for example, uh, other times, what did Jesus say when he went preaching, right? Remember, after he was baptized and he was driven into the wilderness, the Bible says that he came and what did he print? What did he preach? Repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The, Jesus did not, and that's what, that was his message. His message was repent. There is no indication that John needs to repent. Jesus doesn't tell John to repent. Why? John had repented of his sins and probably was repenting on a regular basis. That's what Christians do. We don't repent one time and get over it. We live a life of repentance. John was being faithful. He was walking with God. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He's being faithful. He's there because of the word of testimony there. God doesn't come to him and say, John, 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 what have you done now? I told you not to do that. He doesn't say, John, repent. He doesn't call him to repent. He doesn't call him to change. He doesn't do any. He doesn't. There's nothing. There's no indication that John has done anything wrong. He's there for the word of God and the testimony. By the way, there'll be other people. Another same words are used, for example, in Revelation chapter six, verse nine. Revelation six. Revelation chapter six. 
um, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony they had given. So when we get to the tribulation period, so here's John before the tribulation, banished for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Here are these in the midst of the the tribulation. They've suffered and been persecuted, martyred because of those things. And even when you get to Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, same language is used there. Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. Then I saw the thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image. Why were they beheaded? Because of the word of God and the testimony about Jesus. It's happening today. It's happening today too. And it's happening in and in increasing capacity. And my concern is, is I want us to live a life that we would stay true to the end if it means the losing of our heads. And folks, that doesn't happen automatically, and that doesn't happen without pursuing God in holiness. And that doesn't happen without, in Christ alone, my hope is found. It is well with my soul. It requires that type of partnership and affliction, fellowship of suffering, that we are able to do that. I also think it's interesting something else that Jesus does not say in Revelation chapter 1. He does not say, John, pack your bags. It's time to go home. There's no indication from this text whatsoever that Jesus even addressed where he was or what he was doing. He, he didn't say, I've come to set you free. I've come to release you. I've come to deliver you from your trials and troubles and tribulations. He, no, he comes and he says, write these things down and, and share them. Write them on a scroll and we're going to send them and do all that. But he doesn't say, you're free. You're done. You can go home now. I've come. Could Jesus have delivered John from the Isle of Patmos? Did Jesus release John from the Isle of Patmos? Not at this particular point in time. I don't want you to think and I don't want you to ever think that when you're going through the midst of trials and troubles, tribulations, afflictions, suffering, whatever word that you want to put on it, that God does not know. Because he does. All the way back in Exodus chapter 3. God says, I've heard the cries of my people. They're under those evil taskmasters. I've seen the harshness with which they've been treated. For 40 plus years, 400 plus years, not 40, 400 plus years, many came, many lived, and many died wondering, where's God? Oh, he's right there. 
He's right there with you. Is he able to deliver? Yes, he is able to deliver. Is he able to heal? Yes, he's able to heal. Is he able to work a miracle? Yes, he is able. But even if he doesn't, my hope is in Christ alone. It would have been just as easy for Jesus to say, go home, as it was to write. But he didn't. No indication at all. Now, church history, and you take this with a grain of salt. Church history tells us that after Domitian died, uh, that John was ultimately released from Patmos and went to Ephesus, the first city. And there he... um, he died. He died there. We don't know how old he was exactly. He would certainly be in his uh, mid-90s, mid to late. We don't know how long he was there. Um, we do know that our guess is Revelation was written 92 to 94 A.D. Domitian came out of power. He died in 96. It would have been shortly after the release of Domitian. So you're thinking mid to late 90s. And what's interesting, what's interesting, Darlene, is that all the apostles were dead. He alone was the last apostle. Right, they were probably all in heaven wondering what John did, why he's not there. <laughs> he must have gone to the other place. <laughs> no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But here's John, right? Here's John. He's there. He's remaining faithful, longing for the day to go. And the Lord Jesus shows up. I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. When you look at this map, you get an idea of the layout of the, of the land. You can see this would be a popular mail route. So ships would come in from Rome, and they could stop there. They could harbor there at Patmos if they needed to before they entered on into the port at Ephesus. So this would be a place that they could stop and weather the storm on the way. This was also the mail route, the mail route. So Jesus specifically chose these seven churches. This isn't random. He didn't say send it to the churches. He says send it to this church and that church and that church and that church. And you'll notice, you'll notice the route here. This would be a popular mail route. And so he would write a letter to Ephesus and then 40 miles later this would be Smyrna. 40 miles later would be Pergamon. 45 miles later would be Thyatira. About 30 miles, 40 miles would be Sardis. 20 miles to Philadelphia or so. And then another 40 miles to Laodicea. They would take these, they would write these letters, and as he writes the letters, he would write a letter to this one, a letter to that one, to that one, to that one. But you can imagine, it's like what you would think, is they would take the letter, and they would copy it, and it would set it all. Now, I don't want you to think that because he wrote the letter to these churches that they don't have anything to say to us, because 
we certainly can learn, right? The things that Jesus would commend these churches for will be the same things that he commends our church for. And the things that he criticizes, the things that he condemns here, we certainly can learn from the example of that. Because remember, when we get to Revelation 2 or 3, he says, let he who has ears hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So all of them, so we can learn from their good examples, we can learn from their bad examples. But it's important that I think that we realize that when he told John to write, he listed these specific churches because they were real. They're not arbitrary churches. They're not the church age. They're not seven periods of the church time, as people would say uh, later. He's writing letters to specific churches, and he says, write the things that you see. I think it's interesting I think it's interesting that he says, write. He'll tell John multiple, multiple times to write. And only one time in Revelation chapter 10, if you want to get ahead, does he say, don't write. You see this, but don't write it. Revelation chapter 10, I'll let you look look that up. But here's John. And John is on the aisle, and he's there. And how fitting is it that the Lord would come to the oldest, only remaining apostle, the disciple whom Jesus loved, would appear to him on the Isle of Patmos, banished to a life of hard labor, and say, write what you see. And it would impact and affect every person in the world who was alive then all the way to those who were alive today. Why is that significant? Well, John wasn't like what you'd expect him to be. What would, who would we think that Jesus would use today? Young, right? Lots of energy, right? Catchy personality, a lot of gifts, an up-and-comer, person who would market well, a person who would do all of these things. We would, if we were looking over the world, right, and we were going to pick the person to entrust with the the final book of Revelation, the Revelation of Jesus Christ, to spell out the plan of God for all of eternity. I don't think any of us would go to a an aisle of banishment and isolation on Patmos and pick the least likely individual an older man in his 90s without a lot of strength who wouldn't be marketable he wouldn't have the strength to go and do all the things that he would need to do and yet that's the one to whom Jesus went and the one to whom Jesus uses and that gives us hope Because if he can use a man in his 90s banished on an Isle of Patmos, then he can use you. And he can use me. And together, he can use us to bring him glory in a unique and powerful way. So what does it take to be used of God? Well, I think the same things we see in this passage. John understood the testimony of Jesus. 
I think to be used of God means, number one, that you're saved, that you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that that personal relationship with Jesus Christ is real and evident in your life. He has changed you. And I think you give evidence of that change through believer's baptism. You give evidence of that change through a life of surrender uh, to him. He's there because of the Word of God. I think to be used of God requires that we will be in the Word of God on a regular, even daily basis, that we will open God's Word, that we will search for the truth of God's Word, that we will allow the Spirit of God to bring the Word of God at work and play in our lives. We will not assume the Word of God. We will spend time with God in His Word because this is where you hear the voice of God. If you want to hear the voice of God, study the Word of God because it's in the Word of God that you hear the voice of God. And it's a sure word of God. Salvation, surrender, study, serving, serving. What gifts has God given you? And being right in the spirit on the Lord's day in the Lord's house. I'm just going to say this, and you all are faithful in here. I'm talking about those heathens like my wife who are not here today. Be in the Lord's house. Be in the Lord's house. She's in the Lord's house at the beach. I'm teasing. But I don't know anybody that God has used in a great capacity to impact the kingdom of God that didn't have a regular, consistent, ongoing relationship with the local church, the bride of Christ. What will God do with us if you do all of those things? Simply put, whatever He wants to do. And whatever it is, it will be enough. God's not looking for extraordinary Christians God does the work that he does through ordinary people using the ordinary means of grace, doing ordinary things, living ordinary lives for his glory. God doesn't need superstars. Jesus is the superstar. But if we are saved and we are surrendered and we're serving and we're studying the word of God and we're sitting in the sanctuary, God will do whatever it is he wants to do with us and for us and through us and he'll do so for his glory and may that encourage all of us today what you'll find is is you'll find that in the middle of that you will come to place where you'll say God even if you don't my hope is in you alone let's pray Father, thank you for loving us and thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the ways that your word encourages us and strengthens us. I pray, Father, that we would indeed be found faithful. God, wherever we are, wherever you place us, wherever you put us, may we be faithful to share the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And whatever the consequences, may we be willing to endure those things. And Father, whatever mission, whatever task that you call us to do, may we be found faithful to do it. You didn't require great things of John. You simply told him to write. Not to write in ornate words, not to write, not to craft. You told him to write what he saw. 
And Father, may we be found faithful to follow your simple instructions as well. And we love you. We give you glory for it all in Jesus' name. Amen.